Good morning. Thank you, Dan. Uh, open your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 1. The book of Acts opens with two chapters that I have labeled as the church in preparation, and the rest of the book I've labeled the church in mission, chapter 3 through 28. That church in mission is divided among the mission to the Jews, 3 through 12, and the mission to the Gentiles in 13 through 28. Who was the primary focus on, which apostle was the primary focus on? Brother, can you not turn that on? But but plug it in, because I may walk over and turn it on if I get warm. Uh, Some of you know that I had COVID a couple of weeks ago, and uh, it, it left me chillier. Yeah, which is a really bad thing if you live in Edmonton. I mean, I was perfectly comfortable here for 35 years until I got COVID. (laughs) This is actually the third time I've had it. First time I got it, there was no such thing as a COVID vaccine. In fact, there was no such thing as COVID. I was just really sick, and what's the problem here? And... uh, The pandemic actually started, or or people started talking about it about five or six months later. And I remember calling Debbie to the the television. We were watching the news, and I said, that's what I had. And uh, then I had it twice after I was vaccinated. But both of those times were much, much easier to bear. Um, the, The apostle front and center in the ministry to the Jews was Peter. Peter was the one front and center, which is kind of ironic. Paul was the one who had all the training uh, from a Jewish standpoint. So if we had picked the apostles, we would certainly have picked a group of dismal failures because the Lord picked them and the Lord always does the right thing, the scripture says. And so the apostle in the second part of that mission section, chapters 13 through 28, the one you find front and center all the time is the apostle Paul. Yes. So that's going to be our general uh, structure for the messages from the book of Acts. But these first two chapters are going to occupy our attention for a few weeks The foundation of the church is Jesus Christ, and the mission of the church, the key there is the concept of witness. And I won't talk about that very much because it's going to come up 38 more times in the book. And so to understand what it means to be a witness or to use the verb to witness We're going to run across over and over and over again. But let's just use the illustration from our English language and English culture. 
A witness is someone that is called to give testimony. That's the same idea as witness, but to give testimony, usually we think of in a trial. So what does that witness do? That witness tells a court and a judge and a jury, if it's a jury trial, he tells them what he or she has seen or knows. And that basically is what a Christian witness does. I have the experience of knowing Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. And as we heard from Emery last week, she said she made a profession she thought she knew. But there were things that the Lord brought along in her life that helped her understand she really did not know. And so a witness is someone who tells what he or she knows, what he or she has experienced. This is the way I got saved. This is what I went through. As much as we know, I remember my son coming to me at the age of six and saying, I don't remember how I got saved. He was saved at four and a half. Uh, I don't remember the circumstances. I just, I said, well, tell them what you know now. And so that's what he did when he got up to give his testimony of being baptized. He was quite young, but he understood certain things very clearly at the age of six. So that's the idea. The mission of the church is witness. The guidance of the church is corporate prayer. And that takes us to the end of chapter one. Not only did they pray in concert together, but they prayed for a replacement for Judas among the apostolate, among the, twel among the twelve. All right, so that's basically our arrangement. And this morning, we're only going to cover the first two of those three, the foundation of the church. And I use a phrase from verse 1 in Acts 1, all that Jesus began to do and teach. He is the foundation of the church. He's called the cornerstone. He is called the foundation. And this is what happens in the first five verses. Let's read them together. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days. Uh, this is the time between the resurrection and the ascension. That's where the 40 days comes from. And speaking about the kingdom of God. And, what, uh, and while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. He told them all about this in the farewell discourse, John 14 and 15 and 16. I am going away. You cannot come where I am going, but I will send another, what? Another comforter. Another helper is the expression that the ESV uses. For John baptized with water, 
but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then he says, not many days from now, about 10 days from now. The author's reference to the first book in verse 1 is very informative. What first book is the author talking about? Silence. Well, the first book is the book that he says, I have dealt with. This is the first book that the author of Acts also was the author of. And then if there was a first book, then the Acts must be the second book. So he begins his introduction by saying, I have put together, and we know by the uh, leadership of the Holy Spirit that he inspired this person to put these two books together. And the same author said about the first book, this first one had to do with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. So it's basically a story of Jesus' life. Now we do have four books in the New Testament that tell the story of Jesus' life, and we would call them what? Gospels, the good news about the life of Jesus Christ. And and so we begin with, before his birth, explanation of certain events that took place, even before he was born, and then some incidents that took place around his birth, and then when he was 12, and then all of a sudden when he's about 30, Luke says. So, so we have a story that focuses mainly on not just his ministry, but a third of all the Gospels are devoted to a description of his trial and death and resurrection. So the first book he's talking about is the Gospel of Luke. And we call it the Gospel of Luke because Luke wrote it. And if Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke, he also wrote Acts. Very good. All right, so we got that much just from a few phrases. What is is that expression in verse 1, taken up, until the day he was taken up? That's a reference to what event? Not the rapture, but his ascension. Just like uh, Brother Elias described, his rising off the earth. Now, I thought it was pretty clever, somebody thinking if I did that, I'd bump into the roof. But there was no roof. He was near the top of the Mount of Olives. And he just began to arise. And so naturally, they just start following him. And up he goes. And up, you know, you can't get that high before you're so small at that height. You just disappear. But they could still see him. And I thought to myself, you know, I've been in Israel This time of the year, Pentecost was celebrated the very end of May or the beginning of June, and uh, there are virtually no clouds in the sky. So if need be, the Father simply made one to block their view, and then uh, they had an experience with angels that we'll talk about. But this takes us back to the opening words of the Gospel of Luke, 
We've already read how he introduces Acts. How does he introduce the first book, the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke? And here's how he says that. You can turn back to the very beginning of Luke, first page. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, if I can put that in plainer language perhaps, because lots of people had written either an attempt at a whole biography of his life or just various parts of it they were there for. They compiled these various stories and things, and uh, they were all about what we had accomplished, meaning the apostolic band. Now, Luke was not part of the Twelve, but he was working with the Apostle Paul. It's kind of interesting right here in the book of Acts. He'll go along talking about this is what Paul did. This is what the group with Paul did. And then all of a sudden, he'll start changing the words. And he'll say, this is what we did. This is where we went. And so we know he's including himself in some of those events. These things were accomplished among us. Just, sorry about that. Uh, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word um, have delivered them to us. So not only were these compilations uh, very commonly in use among the disciples, there was a time when they all started sending them to Luke. Maybe every day in the mail. What? Another one? Another one? Now he's got a pile of them on his desk. Let's see. I wonder what God wants me to do. And so he begins himself to put together uh, a compilation. Verse 3, it seemed good to me also. There's his pile, and he makes the conclusion, hey, I ought to do something with these. Having followed all things closely for some time past, I paid a lot of attention to the various parts of the life of my Savior, the Lord Jesus, and it seemed appropriate to him or good to him to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Most excellence a term that we would use to address uh, a judge, your honor, or your excellency, or uh, I don't know whether we'd call the queen queen. She's got a whole book of uh, proper etiquette around her. I'm not sure what we call I know we don't call her Elizabeth. I know that. But anyway, he is writing to Theophilus. And why is he doing that? Verse 4, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have already been taught. Now, as soon as I read, well, it was one of the times that I'd read through all of this, it occurs to me, this is Luke discipling Theophilus. He's been saved, but he's heard this story and that story. He has maybe a few compilations in his back pocket, but here is now an orderly account, and the Spirit of God has directed him to author one of the most extensive books of discipleship there is. 
And the surprise is, when we compare this introduction with the one in Acts, guess what Acts is? It's part two of the discipleship booklet. Now, ours is pretty short with all of its lessons. But this one is very, very long. Both of them mention Jesus' ascension. They both mention His last commands to the apostles. They both mention His resurrection and what uh, Luke in the book of Acts calls many proofs. Uh, They both mention Jesus talking about a kingdom, but he does talk in Acts about the kingdom of God. It's not just the disciples talking about the kingdom coming to Israel. So, uh, there are these parallels. It's really quite interesting how the two introductions work together. So, let's just make a couple of applications. What does this mean? What does this introduction with a lot of information? We don't know anything about Theophilus except that he's mentioned twice. Some people go to great lengths. Well, the mean the, the name means lover of God, Theo, God, Philos, or Philia, love of or affection for. So he must have been saved, and I made that inference. Um, Maybe he was very, very interested, and Luke decided to write a really long gospel tract. And you don't really know that, but um, he's only mentioned in these two places in the Bible. But it tells us the importance the early church placed on discipleship. It is very important for us, just as Luke did with Theophilus, it is important to us not just to make converts and encourage them to come to church, but it's important for us to make disciples. As the commission in Matthew chapter 28 states, Make disciples of all nations, followers of Christ. They've made a decision. You know, there are lots of people who make decisions. Decisions don't make a disciple. Decisions can be made because mom and dad want me to do that, or because I have pressure from some friend to do that, or because I feel very guilty about certain things in my life, and God will like me if I say I believe in him. Or as a lost person, somebody asked me, do you believe in Jesus Christ? And I hauled out my little crucifix around my neck. Of course I do. I'm a Catholic. I did not understand what it meant to believe in Christ was very different from believing that there was once in history a man named Napoleon. Not the same thing. This belief involved total commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I had never done that. So... Christ did not command us just to make converts, though that is step one in the Great Commission. He commanded us by the Spirit's power to make disciples, followers. We disciple new Christians in part by this preaching, 
And uh, you'll hear reference specifically to the gospel multiple times during a service here. We sing the gospel. We pray the gospel. We teach kids the gospel from a young age. We refer to it in an offhanded way. Why do we do that? Because faith comes by hearing and by hearing the word of God. And this, as you'll see, is the function of the church. And we'll talk more about that here. God does place a premium value on preaching and teaching the word publicly. Uh, More than a dozen times you will find Jesus when he approaches a crowd. What does he do? And he taught them. And he was teaching them. Sometimes we think, you know, you can't teach. You have to preach from up here. And it's a shame if all you do is preach without teaching. So uh, this is the need or this underscores the need also for uh, the first steps in the Christian life in perhaps a one-on-one kind of fellowship. But also it tells us that the gospel of Luke and Acts are two parts of the same story. It is a, Acts is a continuation of the gospel of uh, Luke. And, and we know that. Go to chapter 24 in the Gospel of Luke and then start immediately after that in chapter 1 of the book of Acts and you'll find them saying many of the very same things. I'm picking up where I left off, Luke says. The Gospel of Luke is the good news about Jesus saving us from our sin. And the Acts is the good news about the spread of that message into the known world. That makes the story of Jesus Christ part of the preparation, part of the foundation of the coming church. Now that church is going to come in about 10 days' time from verse 6, okay? Or from that next section that Elias read. So when verse 5 says, not many days from now, you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit That's the time he meant, about a week and three days. This is going to take place because that's when the day of Pentecost arrives. So let's go down to the mission of the church uh, and read verses 6 through uh, 11. So when they had come together, they, the they are his disciples, um, they asked him, Lord, Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. His answer is basically no. That is not what we're going to talk about. That is not what we're going to do. You have the wrong idea. Reminds me of my grandchildren. Well, reminds me of the littlest grandchild. He comes into the kitchen and he sees something on the countertop that looks good to him. Can I have a piece? And bless her heart, my daughter-in-law more often than not says, no, it's not time for that. Same idea here. But notice the first word in verse 8. But, not time for that, but 
You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And here they are, just a whole bunch. By the way, uh, there were 120 in the upper room. We know the disciples were there, but there could have been over 100 people standing in a group, all staring up into heaven. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went... Behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Only backwards. He's coming down and he gets larger and larger. And then we see a lot of other people with him. Guess who that is? Us. And as we descend to the earth, his mission at that point in time is entirely different than his first one. So, the chronology of Jesus' departure, because it's been a long time since we started this Thursday night talking about the events in the Passion Week. Remember all those Passion Week messages we had? Well, uh, John's Gospel records Jesus' farewell discourse. This was started in John 13 while he was sitting having the Last Supper with his disciples. Uh, But he began to speak about what was going to happen. Remember he said, uh, I am leaving. And where I'm going, you cannot come. And they were all full of sorrow. Then he goes on to chapter 14. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And then he goes into chapter 15 about the vine and the branches. And then he goes into 16. But in 14, 15, and 16, all three places he mentions, it's important that I go away so that I can send the comforter, the helper to you. This is the Holy Spirit with which Jesus will baptize his disciples on the day of Pentecost. Now, we have an idea of what happened, but we're going to look at that closer in the weeks to come. After uh, the farewell discourse, he was, it was early, very early in the morning, and he was arrested, and there was a three-part Jewish trial and a three-part Roman trial after which Jesus was tortured and crucified. Remember, from 9 o'clock in the morning to 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Then he was taken down from the cross, prepared for burial, and then buried by Friday evening. Now, we don't, they didn't call it, let me back up, they didn't call it Friday or Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, or Saturday, or Sunday. They didn't call the days that back then. We call the Passion Week that week. So they did use the term week back then, but when we talk about this, we're talking about the days as we know the name of them. But on what we call Sunday morning, he rose again from the grave and... 
That was two days later from Friday, as we understand it, three days, three nights in Jewish reckoning. And he showed himself alive on that very day, five separate times. Remember the many proofs showed himself alive by many proofs. He did that over and over again on that day. Over the next 40 days, or you want to say 39 actually, because he's, we've already talked about the Sunday, that was the first one. After his resurrection, he continued to reveal himself five more times. What was something that he did to prove that he was alive? He ate on two different occasions. He ate food in front of them. And on one very dramatic occasion, he told Thomas, you come and put your hand through the hole in my, your fingers rather, through the hole that's in my hand. And you put your hand through the big hole that's in my side. And they knew he was alive. Infallible proofs. And then uh, he's going to ascend as we are going to see. We already have read about it uh, in verses 6 through 11. For about 10 days after the ascension, this larger group of the disciples stayed together in concert prayer or in naming the 12th apostle in the upper room. And then on the Pentecost Sabbath, 50 days after the Passover feast, the Holy Spirit was sent from heaven on the apostles and their converts. And with this, the foundation of the church was completed. And the church age began, or what some call the church age, began. So this entire process took about 50 days. And that's the order of the events that we pick up at the end of in the book of Acts. The ascension can be divided into two parts, the commissioning and the reminder. The commissioning in 6 through 8, the reminder in 9 through 11. There are several elements which God um, intended to heighten the drama of the giving of this mission. It's really fascinating when you stop and think about the passage. Why would God bother to heighten the drama? Because it makes it more compelling for us to obey the commission. It is not just relating the story. He's relating the story and how the process had more and more impact as they go through it. Follow this with me. The first thing that heightens the drama is the disciples' diversion. Is it time? When they had come together, I already mentioned the 12 were there for sure, but there may have been up to 120. Chapter 1, verse 15 says there were 120. You can glance down at that. Uh, but that's a lot of people standing out there on the side of the mountain, listening to Jesus give the commission, and then watching him rise off, to, uh, off the earth. Um, and you say, uh, you know, that must have been extraordinary. Well, the thing that's extraordinary is it's the last thing he said before he left. This is your job. For the next age. This is your job until I come back. 
We have often commented on the disciples' misguided views of future events. I have often commented on this. Uh, One man said, the question that the disciples asked on this occasion, um, it reflects the embers of a once blazing hope for a political theocracy. You say, whoa, man, it's Sunday morning. Don't put two confusing words like that together. Uh, A political means a government-organized. Theocracy is the rule of God. And the thing these disciples love to think about, if this man is the Messiah, Jesus, and they believe that he was, if he is the Messiah and we're his disciples, who's going to be some of the ministers in this cabinet? We are. See, they're blazing hope in a political theocracy in which they would be the leaders. Now, right away, we stop and think of more than once they argued about who was going to be first. First. You know, I, you know, I, I had five kids. We all listened to kids' songs. And every time I read something like this, I think of Wally, or I forget what the clam's name was, or whether the clam actually said it or not, but me first, me first, me first. That was the apostles. You know, who's going to be first? Or John and James sidling up to Jesus and telling their mother, please ask him if I can sit on his right hand, and then James can sit on the left, and you can hear James say, well, no, wait a minute. I thought I was going to be on the right. You were going to be on the left. Me first, me first, see? So here they are. Why did they do that? Because they thought that's what he came to put together. The kingdom for Israel. Not a kingdom for something called the church. Not a kingdom, certainly not a kingdom for Gentiles. So here's their confusion. And so Jesus says to to them, uh, it is not for you to know the things that the Father has a prerogative to determine. It's not for God, uh, it is for God the Father Almighty to know and not your concern when the kingdom comes back to Israel. You've made a mistake being fixated on this before, and they had, hadn't they? Jesus said, uh, I am the Christ. And so he said, but I have to go to Jerusalem and be crucified. And Jesus played the, or, or Peter rather, played the part of Satan and said, no, no, Lord, this shall never be to you. I defy what you say to me, Lord. So they, they got in trouble fixating on this. This is the Father's prerogative. And when it's time for you to know, he will reveal that to you. Sometimes I think we get so enthralled in a system of eschatology that we're going to be shocked if it doesn't unfold like this guy said or like this guy said. And we need to take a lesson from uh, the mistake, not just of the scribes and Pharisees, but of the disciples themselves. Okay, the second thing 
That's part of this is the Lord's negative. But you will receive power. This is the, the first thing that heightens the drama is just their mistake in thinking what's coming next. The second thing is the Lord's first word in verse 8. It is not that which you think, but very strong word of contrast. Not that, but this. You tell your kids, we're going on a vacation, and they think Disney. And you're saying, no. (laughs) We're going to grandma's house. (laughs) And they look like, what? So the contrast, no, not that kingdom, but a different one. Not your leadership, but your servitude. You mean we've been following you for three and a half years so that we can be better slaves? Exactly. Second element in this is power. The kingdom does require power. You will receive it. It is a promise that you will receive it. And you know, I used to wonder, I read books about preaching and people talk about what it's like to be, have the experience of being full of the Spirit as you preach. And uh, I had a very dear friend of mine say, you know what, that's, what is that like for you? I said, to be honest, I don't know that I've ever felt terribly powerful in my messages. I do have a lot of liberty sometimes, and I am very animated by my subjects sometimes. But when I think of power, you know, I'm, I'm a modern kind of person. I think of the Incredible Hulk. But it's not like that at all. It is not that kind of power. Power to make us effective in our task. It is that kind of power. It is not the power to kill and maim or destroy like all the Marvel comics want to elevate. Not that kind of power. It is the power to go to our enemies and give them the gospel and see them transformed into brothers and sisters who love us. Well, that wouldn't make such a hot Marvel movie, would it? The next element, of course, the key element, witnesses. In all of its forms, used 39 times in the book of Acts, it is the primary emphasis, not only of the book, but especially of our mission. What does he want us to do? Wherever we go, whatever we're doing, as the door opens, we tell what we know. We tell them about Jesus Christ that he died for our sins. But we don't just tell with words. Now, faith does come by hearing and hearing by the word of God, but we don't just tell with words. We tell with how we live. Everything we do, everything we say, whether it's a gospel message or not, everything says something about who our master is and about the message he wants us to deliver. And so the whole life is given over to this idea of being a witness. So witnessing is the commission. Witnessing with words. Witnessing with actions. 
And then the final element in the mission statement or commission is the scope of it. Where are we to witness? Well, he told them from Jerusalem, so we would guess where we are now. I have neighbors. I had friends. In fact, I spent the first three or four months visiting those I was closest to, and only one of them didn't think I was crazy. Only one of them didn't say, Talbert's got religion, don't let him talk to you. And we still interact. I've witnessed to him many, many times. I've not kept count. And he still emails me back. He lives in North Carolina. I live here. What's the scope of it? The scope of it is wherever God calls us to spend our lives. That's the scope of it. It is no decision of ours where we go and what we do. It is God's decision where I am a witness. When these disciples got saved, they were purchased with the blood of Christ. And like them, we Christians no longer belong to ourselves. It's not me deciding on my career, but God choosing not just my career, but my whole future for me. He will uh, choose for me. And, and His will, His will is better for me for all eternity than a thousand choices of my own on a career. Because He's the only one who has all the ability to make my life not just an earthly joy, but an eternal joy. So what is the reminder? Verses 9 through 11. Well, this rounds out the amazing ascension event. When he had said these things, as they were looking up, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. When we compare this with Luke's account in chapter 24, verses 50 and 51, it says that he led them out as far as Bethany. That's a very small village on the side of the Mount of Olives. And uh, lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he began to rise up off the ground, just as Brother Elias was describing. That's exactly how it happened. He just began, begins to rise up. Now, the disciples have seen some pretty amazing things in their three-and-a-half-year ministry, but this they'd never seen before. And there is, there's a, a, a bit of compilation we have to do with these two accounts but it seems that after giving them the great commission, Jesus lifted his hands and blessed them. And as the followers looked at him while he was blessing them, he began to rise off the Mount of Olives. They all continued to look skyward. And in a very dramatic fashion, we realize he just gave the commission. Now he's gone. You see how the drama builds but as if that's not enough, while they are there standing looking up, um, two men stood by them in white robes. And we know that those are elect angels. There are only two kinds of angels. Elect angels, we might call them good angels. And the non-elect angels, the Bible calls what? Demons. Evil spirits. Whatever you want to call them. Devils. The King James called them but here are these two good angels. You say, how do you know they're good? Well, you can tell by the suddenness of their appearance. 
you're out there in the desert all by yourself, and then all of a sudden you notice stand, someone standing next to you. Okay, that's an angel, all right? These guys have white robes. Demons don't like white. No, they, might, they don't mind blue stripes, maybe. I don't know, but anyway... Uh, they are angels, and they say, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So not only do they guess the wrong thing at first, and Jesus says, No, not that, but this commission... And then as he's delivered their commission, he begins to rise. And you know it's the last thing he said. But you add to that, he's coming back here. And when he gets back, what do you think he's expecting of us? I gave you your job. Now in this meeting, this morning, he has given all of us our job. And He's coming back. And if you spend your life on yourself, you will not be glad to see him. If you spend your life on being a witness with your words, with your actions, then this is the remainder of the dramatic things that make the fourth and final touch of drama on this scene. What do I want to say to him? What do I want to think about as I go from this building this morning? Did I do my job? Was I a witness? Now you know how the Lord is with excuses. He does not cotton to excuses. See, well, you know, you're pretty severe, so I went and buried my talent in the ground. And so here you go. Now we're even. No, we are not even. See? Was I a witness like he asked me to be in this age? Did I obey him in the single most important thing he gave me to do when he left? Well, this is all about preparation. Preparation is referred to 170 times in Scripture. Often it's referring to preparation of meals. I think most often, I didn't actually count them. Uh, and very often, preparation of sacrifices to be offered. Most unique probably is the preparation <clears throat> of materials that David and Solom uh, Solomon made for the temple. Um, but the materials they provided, you can't buy at Home Depot's or Lowe's. You just whip into Home Depot with your panel van and say, can you please fill that with gold? A little bit of silver would be okay, but mostly gold. And then on what aisle do you have gemstones? I'm looking for diamonds. I'm looking for rubies. I'm looking for emeralds. And, you know, the poor girl says, uh, 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 well, see, it's not like that at all. Gemstones, finely made linen. It was all in preparation for the temple. But Acts 1 and 2 is in preparation for something far more important. The church. The message of Jesus Christ and the clear commission to the church are two of the foundations that needed to be laid, prepared for the coming of 
the Spirit of God and the beginning of the church. And we find ourselves 2,000 years plus later than this beginning. So, so we want to know, uh, what is the foundation? And here it is. And so the question for us is, are we doing the work God has called us to? Parents, are you training your children to do this work? Because if all you're teaching them how to do is make money and get ahead in this world, you have lost them forever. Because even if they do get saved, they've started off with the wrong way to think about what their life is for. Are we training them to do what God has called them to do? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your blessing in this passage and the message that it does have for us. We do pray, Lord, that you would um, fill our hearts with a renewed sense of why we're here. Fill our minds with a renewed understanding of what this life is for. It is not for us, it is for you. And Lord, some of us would say, well, I have no ability to talk to people, but Moses said the same thing. I am not eloquent. And you got angry at him. And I pray, Lord, that we would not make excuses for why we have not been witnesses. We can be witnesses with gospel tracts. We don't have to be especially talkative or eloquent. But Lord, we do have to be obedient from our hearts. And we pray that you would help us to reorient ourselves, if we need to be reoriented, to reorient ourselves to the mission of the church <clears throat> and give us opportunity to be witnesses. In asking for that, some of us may be saying, oh, I would be terrified to have to do this. But Lord, you love a terrified, obedient disciple more than you love a terrified, disobedient disciple. And so we pray that you would be gracious to us, Father. You know uh, what goes through our minds, and we need your grace and help and your emboldened uh, uh, spirit to be working in us. And I pray, Father, that you would bless this church with a congregation full of those desirous to please our Savior. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.